very honored that I was chosen to speak the mor this morning because I actually graduated like 10 years ago. So, <laughs> Growing up, I loved Christmas. It was just a happy time in our family. The family that I grew up in didn't have a lot of means, but my mom somehow found a way every Christmas to fill the under of our tree with all these gifts. And Christmas morning couldn't come early enough. We had five kids, and the way that it happened in our family was we would have something to eat and then all gather, and starting with the youngest, they would open their gifts, and then the old, second, old, second youngest, and on through up to the parents. And as the years went by, one thing that almost happened every year is that we would get to my parents' turn and sometimes they wouldn't have any gifts. Sometimes they would have one gift on a good year, maybe two. And somewhere in there, one of the kids would say, oh, dad, mom, that's such a bummer that you don't have any gifts. And they would say, oh, no, I, Honestly, there's nothing that we need. And for us, the, the big joy is just to, to be with you and to see your joy. And I remember as a kid thinking, why do parents lie like that? <laughs> I'm them now. And turns out they were telling the truth. This morning, we are honoring those among us who graduated from high school and college, and, and we should. But as I was thinking through uh, the theme that we've been talking about and thinking about what to talk about this morning, the thought that occurred to me is I would do best to lie to them and say what everybody else has probably already said. Just look right at you guys and say, you know what? Just follow your dreams. Just follow what's inside of you and you can do anything. Can you imagine what the world would look like if everybody did that? It would be awful. Actually, not even true. In fact, we're living in our country with the results of what that looks like and we're living in a generation that has an epidemic and it's not, it's not a physical disease, it's a soul disease, it's a disease of emptiness. The evidences are on every side. Epidemics of drug overdose and suicide rates that are soaring and, and depression and anxiety that are just everywhere. So I wanna look this morning at a prayer that Paul prayed that talks about fullness. That, that what we long for, what fills our soul, actually can't come from anywhere but from God. So I want to look at that prayer together this morning. It's an interesting prayer because it's not like the prayers that we pray. Paul does not pray. In fact, I think if Paul was here and he was going to pray for the graduates this morning, I think this is what he would pray. But it doesn't sound like the prayers that we pray. Lord, help them to get great jobs, to make millions of dollars. Just help them never to get sick. And Paul doesn't pray like that. In fact, his prayer is quite different. He prays for his friends, these believers in Ephesus, 
that their inner being would be filled with the measure of the fullness of God. How does that even happen? Well, let me remind you the context of this prayer. Paul is reminding these believers that that following Christ, that the Christian faith is not about doing something. It's not about a behavior. It's actually about learning the secret of abiding in Christ, that Christ has come to live in us, and we are in him. So the truth that we've been talking about is that God has come by his spirit to dwell in us. That is not an idea. It is a reality. And Paul's prayer for these people is asking God to enable them to live as though that's actually true. In this prayer, Paul uses the notion of measures and measurements a number of times. What what exactly is the metric for measuring the fullness of God? Listen to what he says in verse 18. He says that they would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. In verse 19, and he says to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. And then he closes the prayer and he says, now to him, to God, who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or think. So, How do you measure the fullness of God? How do you measure the love of God? How do you measure the power of God? How do you receive those things? Let me read this prayer for you. It comes from Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. I read. In him, in Christ, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Interesting. He's he's asking God to give his spirit And that they would have the power of his spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than anything that you ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within you, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Wow. How do you get filled with the fullness of God? Soul fullness, it's not rooted in what we think it is. It's not rooted in the size of your bank account. You know how much money you need to have a soul that's full? Yeah, I don't know either. It's more than anybody has because nobody ever has enough. It's not rooted in the letters that come before your name 
or after your name. It's not rooted in how many likes are on your social media posts. No, it, it's actually rooted, Paul says, in the deep knowing of the Father's love. That's what he's praying for. So how does that happen? Well, the first thing that he talks about is the importance of truth. That it's the renewing of our minds that enables us to walk in fullness. So the reason the Bible talks about this life of faith as being a life of faith is that we live and act, all of us do, according to what we believe to be true. So, so Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, that's what would let me know that you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Sometimes we think what he's saying here is that if you'll intellectually grasp what Jesus is saying, if you can get the right doctrine, then you got this. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying when you walk in it, you will then begin to know what's true and it will set you free. So, all of us ultimately live our lives out of our souls. What you believe about yourself, about God, is the foundation of your life and your identity. It's the foundation. Foundation is what the rest of it stands on. A house stands on a foundation. You can't see it with your physical eyes, but if it's not there, the whole house falls. And the same is true with us. If you're not standing on what is true your soul begins to tremble. So a few weeks ago, we looked in Ephesians chapter one, Paul talks about our, our identity. Our identity is because we are in Christ, Christ is in us, that has transformed who we are. We are chosen. We've been adopted, full adoption into the family of God, sealed by his Holy Spirit, forgiven. But in this chapter, chapter three, he's talking about the fact that we have been loved and we are loved with an immeasurable love. That is who you are. So Paul prays that the truth of God's love that is beyond measure will actually be this thing that you stand on. That's your identity. So the stumbling block that is there for all of us is that we believe lies about our identity. Instead of letting God's truth be the foundation that we believe about ourselves, we embrace lies. And whenever you embrace a lie, it has power over you. The power of a lie is in your agreement with it. Whatever we agree with, we give power to. What am I saying? Over the last months, there have probably been more conspiracies than in the rest of the world combined. There's conspiracies about everything. For a while, I heard that if you get vaccinated, it will actually change your DNA. You will be, I don't even know what you would become, but something like that would happen. I got vaccinated. I think I'm good. But 
if you believe something, it, it shapes what you do, it shapes what you say, and it shapes what you think. If what you actually believe is a lie, that distorts your soul. That's just a dumb illustration. Let me illustrate it with something much more profound. What if, as a child, you were abandoned? Whatever that would look like. One of your parents walked on a, out on you. One of, you, you lost one of your parents. Just something happened that you were abandoned. What happens is that it takes root in your soul. You begin to struggle in your relationships because there's this gnawing in your soul that assures you that at some point you're going to be abandoned. Some, at some point, they're going to walk out on you. You start to believe that, 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 that there must be something wrong with me, something that, that makes me unlovable. And, and the enemy comes along and just affirms the lie in your soul. And Paul is saying, that hurts, but that's not what's true. Power of a lie is our agreement with it. Whatever we would agree with, we give power to. Standing on a lie always has consequences. It's like a disease that gets inside of us. There's lots of them. I want to just underline a few. Uh, Henry Nouwen talks about foundational lies, uh, the things that we grab onto that distort our souls. One of them is called the performance lie. The issue of our value, we believe, is dependent on how we perform. You perform well, you're good. It's the American way. We measure ourselves by our performance. We do it as students. We do it as athletes. I remember a couple years ago, I was watching the Super Bowl, and afterwards they were interviewing one of the guys on the losing team, and the commentators are talking like, oh, this guy, yeah, he's pretty good, but he's never actually won. Like, he's never won the big one. Talking about the guy like, he has no value at all because he didn't win. I'm thinking, wow, he's playing in the Super Bowl. I, I thought that was pretty good. But that's how we measure ourselves. We, musicians, as fathers, as mothers, even as pastors. If I perform well, it's good. I'm loved. Do I measure up? When I do, I feel a certain soul peace, and it lasts for at least 20 minutes, and then I got to do it again. Remember when I started in ministry, one of the callings of a pastor is, is to preach, and there are some days, honestly, when, when I preach, and you just feel the, the pleasure of God, and you just know, wow, that, that, made, that made sense. Then there's other days you preach, and you're like, well, I can't wait to get out of here. I hope I don't have to talk to anybody. That was awful. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> Early on, I remember my wife is my best support and also the one who has the courage to be honest. And early on, I just said, could, could you just wait till Monday? Just give me one day. But here's the truth doesn't really matter how I preach. That's not, that's not why I'm valued. I'm valued because I am the beloved of God. 
before I was ever born, the Father loved me. And, it, and it's unshakable. Another lie that we believe, it's the people-pleasing lie. We believe that the, the issue of my value depends on whether certain important people in my life love me or like me. If they do, beautiful. If they don't, begin to shake on the inside. There's pressure to please people. What, what would happen if they don't love me? When we believe the lie that we need people's approval to feel good about ourselves, anxiety starts to eat at our soul. Criticism feels like somebody put a knife in your soul. And the good news of the gospel is that God's love for you is not tied to anybody else's. Doesn't matter what anybody else says, does, or feels. There's nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God and Christ. Another lie, it's the lie of control. The, the belief of Rob Reamer in his book Soul Care talks about this. The, the issue of your value is dependent on how much you're in control. I think the last year has taught most of us that control, for the most part, is an illusion. But often people who, who've walked through abuse struggle with this. It's not uncommon to, having walked through something like that, to just give up hope that, that, that you'll ever be loved. And so instead of choosing that road, you opt for control. If I can just control the situation, control my life, this will never happen to me again. But Jesus doesn't take that road. He takes a different road. He wants to heal those things in our soul. And those lies are only healed in his presence. Paul knows that healing is not just knowing truth intellectually, but actually knowing it in your knower. The kind of knowing that only happens in his presence. And that's what he is praying for. He begins the prayer with these words. He says this, I kneel before the Father. Wow. You see, in, in Jewish custom, kneeling was not a prayer posture. But Paul is saying, when I come to my heavenly Father, I kneel. That, 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 that's a, a sign of submission, that I'm, I'm embracing what you say and, and that truth. He says, I kneel before the Father. That before is not like, Hey, I'm in the same room with God. It's face to face. I'm in his presence. It's only there that our souls can be healed. Brother Manning's written a book called Abba's Child. And in it, he talks about learning to live in the wisdom of accepted Tenderness, And he tells this story that is delightful. He says, years ago, I related a story about a priest from Detroit by the name of Edward Farrell. He went on a two-week summer vacation to Ireland. His one living uncle was about to celebrate his 80th birthday. So on the great day, the priest and his uncle got up before dawn and dressed in silence. They took a walk along the shores of Lake Killarney and stopped to watch the sunrise, standing side by side with not a word exchanged and staring at the magnificent sunrise. All of a sudden, the 80-year-old uncle turns 
and goes skipping and jumping down the road, radiant, beaming, smiling from ear to ear. His nephew said, Uncle Seamus, you really look happy. I am, lad. You want to tell me why? His 80-year-old uncle replied, yes. You see, my Abba is really fond of me. Wow. Can you imagine what life would look like if we actually believe that? That's what Paul is asking God for. That starts with the renewing of our minds. But it ends with an embracing of our heart. It's actually in our soul, in our inner being, that we experience God and we know his presence. So Paul is not praying about exterior things. He's praying about He's asking for knowledge, and he's praying for our hearts. He's saying that it's actually in God's presence that his spirit transforms us. Remember the story of Peter? Peter was the one that that usually entered a room mouth first. Before he ever got in there, he is already waxing eloquent. And he said some amazing things. He said some crazy things. But he always said him with his whole heart. And the night before Jesus died, Jesus said that one of them was going to betray him. And Peter said, for sure it's not me. I will die for you if I have to. But that's not what happened. In fact, before the cock crowed the next day, Peter denied Jesus three times. Something happened after the resurrection of Jesus that was life-altering for Peter. The only one who wasn't surprised by what Peter did was Jesus. And when he saw Jesus one day by the the shore, Jesus served him breakfast and threw his arms open to Peter. That's life-changing. We live in in the age of enlightenment. If it's not rational, it's not, you can't prove it scientifically in a test tube, then it can't be true. We often treat our relationship with God like that. And and Paul is saying, no, actually, this is much deeper than just your intellect. It's important for two reasons. One is that it's, the scripture says that it's, it's actually only in your heart that you can truly know the Father's love. Paul asks God, to reveal to them the immensity of his love. Then he says, it actually surpasses knowledge. You can't experience God's love just in your thoughts. It's experienced in your spirit, in your soul. That's how we know it. It's being in God's presence that heals us. Knowing the Father's love is, it is head knowledge, but it's much more profound than that. It's, it's something that the Spirit speaks to your spirit. It's also important because sometimes the message that we speak in Jesus' name is more a message of behavior modification, not of heart transformation. But Jesus didn't come so that you would behave. He came so that you would be transformed by the love of his Father. 
So Jesus taught his friends, you're so worried about the words that come out of your mouth. Not that that messes you up. It's actually where they come from. They come from your heart. And if you don't change your heart, your words aren't going to change. So often when, when we're struggling with sin in our lives, with anxiety in our lives, with behaviors, addictions, angers, so often we try to fix them out here, the symptoms. And Jesus says, no, actually, those things are just revealing what's in your heart. The only thing powerful enough to change somebody's heart is the love of God. So, the only place, Paul says, that you can actually perceive that is from the inside. How can you perceive the width and the height and the length and the depth of something unless you're on the inside? This last week we were in Nashville for a conference at the Opryland Hotel. If you've ever been there, oh my goodness. It's, it's like this huge city all underneath a roof, a glass roof. You can probably walk seven miles and never walk on the same steps that you took and never leave the building. It's just enormous. But if you stood like a mile away and you looked at, at the hotel, you'd go, wow, that, that's big. But when you're on the inside, you can perceive the height and the, the width and the length. And, the, and, and that's how you experience the love of God. It's sometimes in our places of deepest pain that we perceive the depth of the love of God. So Peter prays that they would know the width of his love. How wide is the love of God? Well, it's actually wider than all the relationships that you've messed up. And nobody walks through this story without messing up some relationships. We mess up as fathers. We mess up as mothers. We mess up as children. We mess up as siblings. We mess up as friends. But no matter how many you have messed up, Paul says, the love of God is wider. It, it's deep. It's actually deeper than any sorrow we can know. Some of the most painful words in the Bible are found in the, the book of John, where it says that at the moment that Jesus died, he cried out to his father, why have you forsaken me? This, this trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, who have lived in perfect communion and unity through eternity for three days are separated from one another. We want to talk about sorrow. There's no depth that the love of God can't find you. It's deeper than our shame. Shame is an awful thing to walk with. It's like this covering over us. The writers of the scripture said that in Jesus' death, he not only took on us, on himself, our sin, he took our shame. He also says that the love of God is really long. It needs to be long 
because we're stubborn. No matter how long you strive and try, and I'm going to win the love of God, he'll just wait for you until you finally get so tired you give up. And you look up, and there he is waiting. Paul says, I just pray that you, God, by your spirit, would give them power. Power to do what? What does it look like when somebody's filled with God? Well, the distinguishing mark is the love of God. But you can't be something that you don't know. And so he prays that they would know. Marriage was a little bit difficult for me. In the beginning, I grew up with a learning disability. When I was a kid, they didn't have those, so I didn't know I had one. I just knew that the way that everybody else learned didn't work for me. So for years, I couldn't read. Couldn't do what everybody else was doing, so I just had to figure out ways that nobody would know that. And I got pretty good at it. But there was always this gnawing in my heart that maybe I just can't do what everybody else can do. That wasn't a problem until I started to have relationships. And you get close to somebody, what if they find out that half the time you don't know what you're doing? That you're making this up? <laughs> what if they really found out? What, what would happen then? I remember when Ellen and I became friends and I loved, I loved being with her and she seemed to like me. And then she got to know me. and She still liked me. But I had this gnawing fear that if she really found out what would happen, well, she found out and she still loves me. It's actually quite life-changing. That's what... Paul is praying for. Because if you know that, if you know the love of your father, nothing else matters. He closes the prayer like this. He says, Now, to him, to Jesus, who is able to do immeasurably more than all that you ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Wow. We always, not always, but we often talk about this verse and we think what it means is if you take these great exploits for God, he's going to do way more than you ever, and he, that's probably true. But actually what he's talking about here is if you begin to know the love of God like this, oh, you're going to see things that you never imagined. Turns out my parents were right. But there's one thing they didn't tell me that I'm learning now. That now my, my kids are older and they're starting to give gifts to mom and dad. Turns out I really like gifts. <laughs> but way more than the gifts, to see your children become givers, wow, that's beautiful. You see, sometimes we think it would be selfish to go after the love of God. But the love of God never made anybody selfish. On the contrary, it makes people loving. 
Brennan Manning, before he died, was doing a, a conference, young couples, young adults. Right in the middle of the conference, he stops and he says, what if when you stand before Jesus someday, he looks at you and he asks you, hey, did you believe that I love you? Some of us are gonna say, oh my goodness. I preached a message on that. It was amazing. I sang these songs. But Jesus, it was just so hard to, all he wants you to do is believe that it's true. It's actually quite life-changing. Jesus, thank you. Who could have ever known or imagined that the Lord of the universe loves us that much? Even when you tell us over and over and over, it's hard for us to believe. So as we sing in closing, Holy Spirit, I just invite you to come. Visit us. Visit us in the places in our soul that maybe we've grabbed onto a lie that's clouding our vision. That you would shine the light of your truth into our inner being and remind us of the height and the width and the depth and the length of the love of Christ. It's in his name that we pray.